I heard a comment the other day that um, the 1970s was considered the, um, the best time in American television. I'm inclined to agree. Some might go for the 60s. Some might say none of the above. Uh, there's never been anything great about TV. I don't know. Yeah, see? <clears throat> but um, I'll tell you this. Uh, most of the shows I remember do come out of the 1970s. And when you had a pre-cable, pre-streaming, three-network television world, different shows got made that you look back and you wonder, how did that ever happen? Now, one of those that I've been thinking about, and yes, reading Revelation made me think about this, is a show called um, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. That was some good television. You know, uh, there was nothing objectionable about Grizzly Adams, and it was popular. And what I don't understand is how this show was so popular in 1977, 1978, when Star Wars was everything, but the story about a big burly guy and his bear out in the woods is the best show on... They they had Grizzly Adams action figures. Uh, There was even a Grizzly Adams board game. And at the start of every show, his friend Mad Jack, that was Denver Pyle. If you've got Denver Pyle on your show, that's usually a good sign. Mad Jack would say that he was telling the, the true story of what happened to his friend Grizzly Adams. That he was accused of a crime that he didn't commit. So he left the only world he ever knew and he went out into the wilderness. And that's no place for a greenhorn like Adams. And so while he was out there, he met and rescued that grizzly bear cub. And there he was, living in the wilderness from then on, just trying to escape the law that had accused him unjustly. Which always bothered me for Grizzly Adams, because for a man living out in the wilderness, he sure did seem to have a lot of friends. And people were coming by every week with problems. That was the most crowded wilderness you can imagine. Always somebody showing up. But what was the appeal of Grizzly Adams? Uh, you know, I guess you know guys liked him because he's a big, tough dude. I think women liked that hair. You know, is just you know that, that's that, that's angelic hair, and uh, you know, and he was cute with the animals. He was the gentle man of the wilderness. But Grizzly Adams fits into a whole set of of stories where going out into the wilderness seems to appeal to us somehow. That getting away and escaping from the modern world takes us back to something more honest, more pure, more like the way God made it. That being in the wilderness is closer to God's plan for humanity. How many wilderness stories do you know from Scripture? How many stories do you know of people and, and the, the, the people of God being in the wilderness and being changed and being 
made new and, and discovering God in the wilderness. Just think on that sometime. And pay attention to it because you can read through a chapter like Revelation 17 and completely miss it. The wilderness is there. And one of the reasons why we miss it is because we're distracted by that woman on that beast. And like John, we're amazed. And maybe the Spirit needs to nudge us and say, why are you so amazed by this? Let let me read chapter 17. Would you join me in this? Um, You can just listen or read along. I'm reading from New Living Translation. After the seven angels, those seven angels that are delivering God's wrath, the seventh, the one who had poured out, um, or one of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls, came over to John. He said, he spoke to me, and he said, come with me, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality and so the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hands she held a goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. And I could see that she was drunk. She was drunk on the blood of God's holy people, who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement, and the angel asked, Why are you so amazed? I'll tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive, but it isn't now. And yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. Now this calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth king now reigns. The seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was, but is no longer, is is the eighth king. And he is like the other seven in that he too is headed for destruction. And the ten horns of the beast are the kings who have not yet risen to power. They'll be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. And they will agree to give the beast their power and their authority And together they'll go to war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will defeat them because He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And His called and chosen and faithful ones will be with Him. And then the angel said to me, The waters, 
The waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people from every nation, of every language. And the scarlet beast and his ten horns, now they all hate the prostitute. They'll strip her naked and they'll eat her flesh and they'll burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. And they'll agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast. And so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. You're not going to see that on Grizzly Adams. That stuff may not even make it into network television. But it's scripture. And you, you see this imagery. This great prostitute, and that's even, a, you know, there's other words for it. And it's, it's raw language that John is using. Because the sight that he's seen is a raw sight. And this monstrosity, this immorality is sitting atop these masses of people who are flowing like rivers in and out of a great city. And, and, and the beast and the woman are drunk on the blood of those whose blood did not deserve to be spilled. But did you catch where John is seeing all of this? The angel took me by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? In fact, in the picture, you know, we all get distracted here. It's like, oh yeah, how does, that, how does that creature have seven heads? How do you get all those horns on there? But did you notice up here in the corner? The angel's taking John out to a place where he can see the city for what it is. We can get caught up in who the five kings are, the sixth king, the seventh king. And don't worry, I'm going to tell you what I, what I think it is. But the images stand in for a lot of things. Remember that the, uh, uh, he, he, even, he even has two meanings uh, for these. He says the seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills. They also represent the seven kings. Well, which is it, John? Is it the hills or is it the kings? And John's answer is yes. And it may even be more. Ever since Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, it's been the intent of humanity to build great cities that make a name for themselves. And great cities in the world where all the other cities and all the other nations must turn to that city have always represented an empire that opposes God. And this woman and this beast and those streams of people represent the great city of the empire. Which great city? Well, all signs point to Rome. Yes, they do. And it is Rome. And it's also Babylon. And it's also Babel. It is Rome. It is Babylon. The woman is Rome and Babylon. The beast is Rome and Babylon. It's all the above. It's the great city of the empire. At the end of the chapter, he says the the woman that you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. And we want to say, but John, which city is that? And I think the apostle says, well, depends on when you're asking me. 
Because there's always some change in the address. But metaphorically, there's always some great city that thinks it has all the power. Maybe at one time it was London. Maybe at one time it was Washington, D.C. Maybe at another day and age, it has been or it will be New York City. But did you notice that there's a pattern that he gets into? That the, uh, uh, that the city and the beast, it was, it is not, and it will be. We'll come back to that. But whatever this great city is, it's luring in the other nations. This is why it's imagined as a prostitute, as a temptress, as an adulteress. Because it's luring them in and it's asking them to join into an immoral union with the city. And we've seen in our lifetime, and you can see as a student of history, that there are great empires and great cities throughout history. And if you do not play ball with the great city, if you do not join in with the great city, then you will either be defeated or you will suffer in some way. And that's the nature of empires. Empires always want to be in control of other nations and other peoples. The message of this vision and of John going into the wilderness is, get out of that city. Now he said it was in the Spirit. Practically, it may not be possible for the hearers of this letter to get out of their city. Their life is economically tied into that city. Their, their world is economically tied into it. But in some way, they need to remove themselves from it. They need, they need to rid themselves of, of whatever connection draws them into an immoral union with the city. And by the way, fornication here stands in for all sorts of sins. It stands in for the sin of of injustice, the sin of power, the sin of pride. It stands in for the, uh, uh, the sin of idolatry. It's standing in for every sin. This is an image. It's, it's a picture. And we're meant to take a step back and look at this picture and not focus on every brushstroke. The... Um, The angel wants John to see the city for what it is. And the signs and the symbols all point to many things. And the meaning of it is is that the great city is a seductive influence on the world. Does that that sort of thing still go on in our world? I mean, is this something that John's ancient readers needed to worry about and we don't? After all, of the seven cities, the seven churches that are mentioned at the beginning of Revelation. And by the way, those seven churches stand in for all the churches in the world. But in at least three of those cities, there was an idol to the goddess Roma, who would have been the embodiment of the Roman Empire. Maybe this is what John's talking about. Well, if so, then we don't have to worry, do we? Because that sort of thing doesn't go on in our world, does it? It does. This is a statue of a Roman emperor. You might be thinking, hey, that looks like a guy I've seen on TV recently. Yeah, it's Vladimir Putin. 
but it's also a Roman emperor. Because a group in Russia that's pro-Putin decided to make a statue of the Russian leader that looked like one of the ancient statues of a Roman emperor. Now, why would they choose a Roman emperor? I mean, if they like Putin so much, why not do a statue of him with no shirt on on his horse? You know, if they like him so much, why not just do a statue of Putin or hang his picture up? Why, why show him as a Roman emperor? Because this is an image of power. We've got emperors in this world. Some of them are very well known to us, like Putin. Some of us are a great concern to us, like Putin. Or uh, Kim Jong-un, whichever one of those Bond villains is running North Korea right now. And, And if you look at those scenes, they always have huge portraits of their leaders. Why? Because they deify them. They turn them into emperors, godlike beings on earth. Kim Jong-un's grandfather had a secret program to achieve immortality. Oh yeah. That's, this isn't science fiction. And we still have this with us today in big ways and small ways, in the ways that we notice on media. But there are warlords, there are kings in nations in this world. There are people who run states. There are people who run counties, even in this nation, who think that they are greater than everyone else. And the message of Revelation 17 is simply this. Emperors are not God. Now, you and I intellectually get that. Oh yeah, there's one God. There's only one God. Emperors are not God. And we don't like the idea of someone like Putin or Kim Jong-un or whoever it may be saying that they're powerful and they're like a god. And this is where it gets us. This is where it gets me. Because as soon as I see Roman Emperor Putin or I see North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un firing off nuclear missiles that are going to endanger people. I want my own champion king emperor to go over there and give them a punch in the mouth and stop this business. And what has just happened to me is the seduction has got its hooks in me and it has pulled me into the seduction of a myth called redemptive violence. That by being stronger than some Roman emperor, by being mightier than some dictator, by being bigger than the bully and beating the bully up, we can overcome them. But what happens when you start beating up bullies? You become a bully. What happens when you start taking out dictators and you start, you start taking out emperors, you start taking out evil villains? If you don't stop, you can become the villain. This is the seduction of it. The seduction that, that, that violence will solve our problems. That more power and more might will solve our problem. And you can do that on a world global scale or you can do that in your family. You can do that in your neighborhood. You can do that at work. I'll just be the toughest guy around and nobody will ever talk back to me. 
you know? Singer-songwriters of the 70s, they had this down. They warned us, you know. Uh, uh, you don't mess with bad, bad Leroy Brown. He's the toughest guy in town. But then he got attacked by someone bigger and stronger than him. Did you notice that the emperor, something is said about them. The emperor, the beast, that he was, he is not, but he is to come. What's this talking about? Does this mean that in some future date, we're going to have this, this evil emperor that's going to show up who's reincarnated from the dead? Oh yeah. You could go into all kinds of spooky sci-fi with this if you wanted to. But here's the thing about beasts. How many beasts were there? There were seven. Oh, there's seven, seven, seven. No, there's eight. There's eight. There's seven. And then he, then he adds one on. He says five of them have fallen. means they're dead. They're gone. One of them rules. One of them is coming. And then there's going to be an eighth one. A little confusing, isn't it? Yes, it's meant to be. Because that's the thing about emperors. As powerful as they are, they come and go. If this sermon was preached 50 years ago, we'd be talking about a whole different set of players, a whole different group of people. Names like Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, whatever it may be, Angela Merkel, you name them, all those names. None, 50 years ago, wouldn't have known those names. And 50 years from now, those names are going to be footnotes in history. Don't really won't really remember them. They won't be the persistent threat. Because these human beings that claim to be gods, they die. Their destruction is imminent. John says in his vision that the beast, the evil rulers, the ten kings, they're all headed for destruction. On the, and, and it's kind of a, a, a bad version of the statement, that idea of, and the beast who was, is not, but is to come. It's sort of a, a bad version of the statement about God that you also see in Revelation. God who is, who was, and will be. God doesn't move from the scene. God doesn't go away. God is not bound by time and space. God is not bound by these things. All the emperors are headed for their own destruction. And the destruction that will happen is a destruction that comes about because they all turn on each other. When you get to that point of the ten kings, well, the ten kings show up with the beast. All of a sudden, the beast, this Roman emperor, this whoever he is, the Babylonian emperor, this monster that claims to be a god, he starts teaching these smaller kings how to be kings. And isn't that the nature of empires? is that empires like to reproduce themselves. And so they go into other countries. They go to smaller leaders. They go to other leaders and they say, we're going to make you just like us, but you have to give back to us. And the beast is going to do that with the ten kings, but eventually the ten kings are going to turn on the woman and tear her apart. It's their own destruction by their own hands. Evil is self-destructive. Now, if evil is self-destructive, and if by 
fighting fire with fire and we join into the fight against these evil powers on their terms, by their rules, with their powers, if we do it the same as they do and just say, we'll just get bigger and stronger than them, then we start to participate in a kind of evil that is also self-destructive. The warning of Revelation is, get out of that. Go to the wilderness. Get away from that. Sometimes we like to shorten Revelation and say, you know, I I know what the meaning of Revelation is, all those symbols and everything to make my head hurt, but I know what it is. I know what it is. What is it? We win. Yeah, we win. Because we love winning. We like to win. Oh, we want so much winning that it's going to make our heads spin. Win, win, win. That's what we want. But do we ever stop to ask how we win? Because if you read Revelation, you find out that winning is not what we think. That we look at winning as having more points, having more power, having more technology, having more strength, having more money, having more influence. That's not the Revelation definition of winning and conquering. This text in Revelation 17 says that the beast and the ten kings, whoever they are, and it's always going to be some other ten at some point, they come and go after all. These kings and these rulers, they come and go. They were, they are not, they'll come again. Together they'll go to war against the Lamb. But the Lamb will defeat them. Not even a big discussion about this. The Lamb's going to struggle and it's going to look like he's losing in the end. And Ah, he's going to come from behind. Nope. He doesn't come from behind. He's just going to defeat them. He's going to defeat them because he is the Lord of lords and king of all kings. But what does that mean? It means that his authority is given by God. When you and I come here and worship, where are we putting our allegiance? King of kings, Lord of lords. Or are we coming here to get charged up so that we can get more power so that we can rule more you know one of the things that's that's seductive about sin is sin wants you to keep banging your head against the wall and working harder and harder and harder to overcome sin and when sin has you doing that when evil has you doing that it has you right where it wants you because then you become so confident and dependent on self You don't see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You don't notice how He wins. You don't notice the Lamb. But when we notice the Lamb, when we submit ourselves, when we surrender ourselves, when we give our full allegiance to the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain, and we are then called His chosen and faithful ones, we'll be with Him. We will be where He is. So I want you to think about this, that as you go through life, oh, and you remember where we were this time last year? Oh, we were so anxious about the election, you know. Now we're just sick of it all. And, you know, and we, and, and we still worry. I mean, the worry is still out there. And maybe you personally aren't worried, and I get that, and that's okay. I'm glad you're not worried. You know, but the people we live among and the nation we live in still gets worried. 
And we think it's going to matter. And if we don't do this right now, then this is, you know, then we're going to lose the nation. We're going to lose this. We're going to lose the culture war. <laughs> we're going to lose all of this. Look to the Lamb. Look to the Lamb because He conquers. But here's the thing. If you're going to be with the Lamb and be where He is, you don't pick up a sword and go fight in His name. You know, Peter tried that early on, and Jesus said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. The violence, that's not what's going to get us there. The writer of Hebrews has us look to the lamb, and he, he doesn't use the lamb description. But the slaughtered lamb is the sacrificial lamb, and you and I, don't we, we use that term pejoratively we use it negatively i'm not going to be anybody's sacrificial lamb i'm not going to take the heat for this i'm not going to let them run over me Hmm? but the message of hebrews is so also jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood so let's go out to him outside the camp Let's bear the disgrace that he bore. For this world is not our present home. Oh, we're looking for a home that is yet to come. Mm -hmm. Get out of the city, is what Hebrews is saying to us. What, why, are you, why are you trying to own the city? Why are you trying to fight for the city? Get out in the wilderness. Take a look. Look at what a corruption it is. Don't, don't try to sustain and support something that's going to be destroyed. Don't try to sustain and create and build something that you aren't going to be able to keep forever. And that means we've got to shift our thinking and realize this is not permanent. This is not what saves us. This is not what makes us important or gives us meaning but we will build our empires. Meanwhile, Revelation says the Lamb conquers, and His called, His chosen, His faithful will be with Him. And where is He? He's outside the city where people insulted Him, where people disgraced Him. It calls for a type of bravery. Not just to be stronger than the other guy, but it takes a kind of bravery in that we care more about being with the Lamb than caring about this world and what it has to offer us. Let's go outside the city. Seen from the wilderness, I think we can see this world for what it is. I, I ask you, if you are struggling against sin and you feel like you're not winning, quit fighting the battle yourself. Turn to the one who conquers. Go to Him. Ah, uh, yeah, but I can't admit those sins. If I name those sins, people will think less of me. I, I, can't, I can't guarantee you that they won't. But Jesus was obedient to God. And it cost him disgrace. He was scorned. He was ridiculed. But here's the thing. Whether or not, whatever others think about you, number one, that's not your business. And number two, they can't save you. 
So let's go outside the camp. Let's go to the Lamb. Because He conquers over these things that both seduce us and destroy us. As we stand and sing this song, I'm going to give you an option. You, you can pray with elders who will be down here. Uh, you can let us know that you want to follow the Lamb. You can uh, meet with elders back there. There's a room back there with pews in it. Or just turn to those people right next to you and say, hey, I need your prayers this week. I don't know. However we can help you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us now. Your Spirit guides us. Our response this morning is not dependent on my eloquence or my ability to explain things. Father, we see the Lamb. We see the Lamb and He is conquered because He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because He loved you more than He loved His own life. He went outside the city and He's calling us out there. And Father, it's scary to us because we have so much invested in the world the way it is. And I pray that you'll teach us not to cling tightly to that and to get out of the city if it's destroying us. Father, I pray that you'd give all of us the courage to respond as we need to this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.